This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 318 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you this week by EasySignsOnline.com, Equisketch, and TotalSaddleFit.com, home of the Shoulder Relief Girth, and by listeners like you. everyone. Coach Jen here. Reese and Philip are enjoying a much-deserved day off, so we thought we'd give your gray matter a little something to graze on by bringing you an assortment of horse health segments, including Dr. Jones on what changes in forelimb posture could tell you about your horse's soundness. Dr. Jones has some biosecurity advice for show season and wrapping things up. Dr. Newton discusses the injuries most common to dressage horses and how to treat or better yet avoid them. And coming up right after this from Total Saddle Fit, Dr. Kyle and Dr. Wendy talk about the saccharilliac joint, how it functions, and what can go wrong. This week's dressage training tip is brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, home of the shoulder relief girth at totalsaddlefit.com. So taking Dr. Wendy's place this week is Dr. Kyle Swanson, who's going to talk about some part of the horse. The sacro-pelvic area. Okay. That's not so dirty when Dr. Kyle... (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, what is that part? Where is that part? (laughs) So that would be the hind end of the horse, um, which should include the hip bones and the major triangular bone called the sacrum. Uh, which directly connects to the uh, lower extremities in the hind end. Okay. And like right now, that's a hot disease in horses. Like if you can't figure out why they're laying behind is sacroiliac problem. So that's how many of our listeners would hear that. They have a sacroiliac problem. So um, Dr. Kyle, when we see these issues, you know, how do you explain to the horse owner just exactly what the sacroiliac joint is? Uh, I guess it's uh, it's really easy to explain to client owners just through human biomechanics because we both have sacroiliac joints. We're just uh, in different orientations, right? When I'm talking to a client, you really you can't just address the sacrum by itself, right? The sacroiliac joint also includes the hips, so it's very rare that we find an animal who might be, you know, whether it's a horse or a dog, uh, might be misaligned in the sacrum that doesn't have a misalignment in the hip as well because they sort they articulate together. What I try to show the client when we're when we're working with them is, you know, the importance of that moving properly. Now in people, the sacrum, um, the motion that the sacrum does is what's called nutation. Okay. So it, it, it sort of rotates about a specific axis. So if you take a rod, say, and you and you push it all the way through from the left side of the horse's hip all the way to the right side of the horse's hip and you go right through the triangular bone that bone should be rotating sort of around that rod, right? Um, and that, ha- that happens normally when the horse is breathing or when a, a human's breathing. I'm assuming that happens the same way in a horse. So if that's not moving properly, the horse is going to be having dysfunction. It's going to be having pain. It's not going to be able to do some of the things that you're asking it to do. And um, I think 
uh, a really great example of that is something that we saw this weekend at the dressage show that we were just at is when the horse is misaligned in the hind end um, and you start to lose some of that rear function, uh, when you're looking at the horse, say at a trot, for example, um, it becomes a little bit difficult for the horse to bring the hind end forward enough to step over. Like his hind footprint. Correct. His hind foot needs to land in front of the front foot's footprint. Correct. And so it's not able to accomplish that as well when you have poor biomechanics in the pelvis. And, And they get judged on that, right? Like their overstep at the walk and the trot. So sometimes if you get that on your dressage test, like not tracking up, that's, that means that their hind foot is not landing in front of their, right? Right, exactly correct. And so how, how can the sacrum be, like how is the sacrum involved in, in, in that? So the, uh, the lumbar and the sacral joints, they all have nerves that exit at very specific locations. Mm-hmm. So when you have immobilized areas, you can have congestion and those on those spinal nerve roots. Right. Now, those spinal nerve roots control your extremity function. They control how the lower hind end works, how the muscles fire, how the sequencing is firing, mm-hmm. and so on. Right. So, like, um, you told me one time about this common problem with people, sciatica, right? So, how would that, man, is that involved with, do horses get sciatica, do you think? And, and if they did, would that be involved with the, with the sacrum? Um, I, I think they do, and uh, I, I absolutely do, do think it's involved with the pelvis. Um, in humans, we have something that's called the piriformis muscle, mm-hmm. which directly attached to the sacrum. So when you have misalignments in the pelvis, the piriformis can spasm, and the significance of that is that the sciatic nerve runs just below it. So when the, uh, the piriformis spasms, it can entrap the sciatic nerve and create uh, a sciatic nerve-type symptomatology where you have pain sort of coming down a leg, dysfunction in the upper thigh, like numbness. Correct. Which I, th- I think a comparable example of that in horses would be shivers. Mm-hmm. So when you, um, and I'm not, I'm not positive on this, but it seems that shivers would be closely associated with a sort of a sciatic problem or a, a piriformis entrapment. Yeah. And so what do you do to, um, to relieve pain in the sacral area? First of all, how, how do you diagnose that as a chiropractor? So we diagnose through motion palpation mm-hmm. and also through um, just tissue palpation too. You can, t- you can tell different tenderness areas of the horse. They, they tend to typically react to that. Um, but I, will definitely, I would uh, typically motion the sacrum. It's a sort of a dorsal to ventral motion, which right. is sort of pushing down on the sacrum, if you will. And that's when you stand on the blocks and you put your hand like over the highest point of their thumb. Correct. And right. it's actually slight, just a slightly back. So the very highest point would be the, uh, the points of the hip. Mm-hmm. And then if you slide just a little bit back, and it's, as soon as it starts to drop, then you're right there on top of the right. sacrum. And the sacrum, in, it, it's attached to that highest point of the hips, right? Correct. The, uh, the highest point of the hips actually sit a little bit on top of the sacrum. So when the sacrum moves backwards, yeah. that's when the hip bones start to also move. Right. And so... Um, and then what would you do from there? So after you motion palpate, which means you're making sure that the biomechanics are working, there is a range of motion in that joint. If there's not, then you apply a high velocity, low amplitude thrust to restore the normal range of motion in that joint. Mm -hmm. And then you continue on analyzing the rest of the spine. So when we do these, 
work on the sacrum together. Tell us, like, what also, uh, what's the other big area that you're doing that's just in front of the sacrum? Um, I guess it would be the lumbar spine. Yeah. So the lumbosacral joint is, like, really important in people and horses, right? Right, extremely important. And one of the most important reasons is is that's where you're getting your, that's sort of your power stroke, right? Mm-hmm. That's your drive, right? You're, it's sort of a... It's a rear-wheeled vehicle, so to speak. Right. So if you're having poor lumbopelvic biomechanics, which means you don't have strength there, you, you can't fire correctly, it's not, you don't have a rear power stroke, then you're having to pull more in the front, and you're going to definitely create more changes and compensations up there as well. Mm-hmm. So just having a rear biomechanical issue is going to translate, and you're going to have yeah. issues in the neck, issues in the shoulders, because they'd be compensating in other parts of their body. Correct, correct. Yeah. So, Dr. Kyle, if I think my horse has a problem in that area, what's next? Uh, well, the first thing that you want to do if you think your horse is, has any sort of a problem, if it might be lame even, you, you definitely want to get a lameness exam from your general medicine vet mm-hmm. and uh, rule anything out conventional before you move to anything alternative. So, say, for example, if you wanted to get some chiropractic care or some acupuncture, a variety of other modalities that are out there, massage. Um, it's always good to rule out any lamenesses that are going to require conventional intervention before you do those therapies. So if there is a problem, uh, you know, in, uh, is it a series of treatments? Is it one treatment and done with, with the chiropractor? Or is it, is it something that's ongoing forever or just depending on what it is? You know, that's typically a case-by-case situation. So as a rule of thumb, uh, acute situations, so let's say an acute trauma, if the horse gets kicked in the field or it has a recent injury, um, you would typically see them a little bit more frequently in the beginning of care and then then taper off. Um, So let's say you probably want to see them two to three times within the first month. if it's a chronic condition, something they've been dealing with for a while, you don't. Uh, you typically have to treat them a little bit longer, but you don't treat them as frequently. And if they have a job too, like their, their, you know, like their activities of daily living are such that it's really hard on their sacrum, or if they have bad conformation or whatnot, then that's something that is going to need a lot more maintenance over time. Whereas if they just like kind of hang out in the field and you know do very light work, then they might only need to see us a couple, you know, very infrequently. Very good. Where can people find out more? Uh, You can find more about chiropractic and acupuncture on my website at drwendying.com. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Kyle. Oh, thanks for having me, Glenn. Appreciate it. Glenda Geek here. The life of horse person is hard enough, and we all hate doing the required paperwork, and unfortunately, many of us never get around to it, and it just piles up on our desk. That is about to change thanks to the Equisketch Records app for your iPhone or iPad. My wife and I use it to track our horses, and we absolutely love this thing. Equisketch Records is the most thorough and complete equestrian records app on the market today. We love this app because you can track your farrier work, your dental, your Coggins, medicines, worming, and so much more. And you can get reminders on your device when all of these things are due. You'll never forget a worming or shots or farrier visit again. 
but it not only tracks your horse, you can also manage your horse shows, including individual events. You can manage riders, including lessons and memberships and so much more. And you can sync it between your iPhone and your iPad, and all of this for the price of a couple of cups of coffee from Starbucks. Search for Equisketch Records in the iOS App Store or go to Equisketch.com. That's E-Q-U-I-S-K-E-T-C-H.com. Equisketch.com. So I would really like to take the opportunity to encourage our listeners to become very familiar with their horse's normal posture. And this is important for a number of reasons. Frequently, the as the owner or the trainer or the rider, those individuals are the, are the people that know the horse the best. They know how the horse stands in the stall. They know how the horse walks out. They know how the horse stands in the paddocks. And that's a tremendous help in picking things up early that vary from that normal posture for that horse and can be a tremendous help to the veterinarian when the veterinarian comes to look at that horse as the veterinarian will not know each individual horse as intimately as the owners and trainers and riders will. So again, I can't stress enough how important it is to become familiar with each horse's normal posture. For example, I think most people probably recognize this, but I want to point out that a horse can rest one hind limb for an extended period of time, and that's a reflection of their stay apparatus. It's a specific apparatus in the horse developed so that they can rest one hind limb at a time, basically sleep standing up. Now, there is also a stay apparatus in the forelimb, but it's much less commonly used uh, than the hind limb stay apparatus. Now, a change in, in this posture may reflect a disruption or a damage to some part of the stay apparatus. And so that's just an example of how being familiar with a horse's normal um, stance and posture and, and tendencies can be a huge help in evaluating abnormalities. So I'd like to now move on to more specifically talk about forelimb posture. One of the most common abnormalities of forelimb posture would be what's called pointing. And that is when the horse points or holds an affected leg ahead of the unaffected leg. In other words, they'll frequently hold a lame leg out in front of them as opposed to standing underneath them. Usually, these horses are very lame at the walk. If they have a bilateral lameness or lameness that's present in both front forelimbs, they will stand camped out with both forelimbs out in front of them. And that's common in a horse that has laminitis or founder in both forelimbs. You'll see them with a typical stance of the sort of the back end hunched up underneath them and the forelimbs way out in front of them. But again, uh, pointing is not always synonymous with pain or lameness, so it's important for owners to recognize what their horse does on a regular basis. Another issue in forelimb posture that's somewhat interesting is that some horses will actually stack bedding underneath their heels to create a toe-down position, um, and in that way they're taking some pressure off of the uh, soft tissue structures on the back of their leg, like the superficial flexor tendon, the deep flexor, the suspensory ligament. And by standing that way, they can relieve some of that pressure. Now, usually those horses, or they may not be as lame as you might expect when they do that, but subtle little things like that are important to, to notice. And again, it may be just the way the horse stands in the stall, and that can be a big tip-off that there's something not quite right. Now, another abnormality in forelimb posture is what's called treading. And that's a constant shifting from one forelimb to the other. 
And usually that's present in horses that have a bilateral forelimb lameness. In other words, they're lame in both front limbs. Uh, that can be, again, something you'll see in laminitis or founder. could be present in a tendonitis, uh, suspensory desmitis, or even in severe arthritis. Now, another type of asymmetry that we'll see, we've talked about asymmetry, and, and this is a little bit of asymmetry and a little bit of posture mixed in there together, is a horse that is buckling forward at the knee. And one of our earlier episodes, we talked about this when we were discussing confirmation, and we indicated that this can be normal in older jumping horses, and that's probably the most common place which you'll see this horse that buckles over at the knee. And again, knowing what your horse does normally is very important. In rare cases, uh, equine protozoomyelitis or other neurologic diseases can affect the forelimb extensor muscles, and that can also cause a horse to buckle over at the knee, but that's more rare, certainly. Uh, Another area of posture to take notice of is the elbow, and a horse with a dropped elbow usually indicates that there's been a failure of the triceps apparatus to maintain elbow extension. And frequently, that's a reflection of a fracture of what's called the olecranon process or the basically the point of the elbow. Uh, you can also have this dropped elbow when you have an injury to the radial nerve or to the brachial plexus, which is the bundles of nerves basically in the armpit of the horse. Now, when you have severe lameness of the shoulder region, a horse may stand with the affected limb more underneath them or or behind the the normal position that they would be in. And often they'll drag the limb even with the slightest movement. And the posture is similar to a dropped elbow, but with a dropped elbow, usually the limb will be held at or slightly forward to the expected position, whereas with a shoulder pain, usually it's back of where it would normally be. So it's a subtle but important difference and can be a tip-off to where lameness may be originating. Now, in the horse that has neck pain, you will find that those horses often hold their head and neck lower than you might expect them to normally. And with severe neck pain, frequently you'll see spasms or muscle tremors, and those may be more prominent when you're approaching the horse. The horses actually tense up and become more nervous that you may be coming to touch that area or push on that area. And if they have a lot of pain, those tremors may increase when they sense that you're coming near them. It's it's their way of um, guarding um, against any intrusion into that area of pain. And so these are just a number of things, more common things to look at in terms of forelimb posture that can be indicative of specific types of lamenesses and can indicate you know, either specifically where you may have a problem or generally that there is a problem and that there needs to be further evaluation. And so, again, the, I think the highlight of this is uh, become aware of what your horse looks like normally, and and just take note of that when you go out to the barn every day. Just take a look in the stall, or take a look at how they're standing on the cross ties, and just sort of register that and say, you know, is this how he normally stands? You know, or is there an alteration in this? Is there a variation? And if so, what type of variation? And and that can be uh, critical in helping to pick up on a lameness early on in the course, and also to help the veterinarian in their uh, diagnostic workup.
Easy Signs Online is the official sign company of the Horse Radio Network. This week's product highlight are their personalized nameplates. Perfect for horse stalls, tack rooms, lockers, bedroom doors, dog kennels, or whatever you can think of. Choose from hundreds of online graphics to further customize the nameplates from EasySignsOnline.com. Made from one half inch thick solid PVC signboard, these colorful and unique one sided nameplates are three and a half inches by 16 inches and are designed for durability, long-term indoor or outdoor use. They are only $39.95 each, and remember, free shipping on most orders over $100. Visit them at EasySignsOnline.com. Sound great. <laughs> so, yeah, our topic today is biosecurity when you're traveling, and so, um, Dr. Jones, when when you're taking your horses off property and you're going to new places, you know what are the risks for for our horses when we do that? Well, I guess what we're going to talk about the risks. There's lots of risks. There's trauma risks, and then there's also infectious disease risks. And I'm assuming some sort of an infectious disease risk um, by the outline is the way we want to go. But um, what I would recommend this is let's start from beginning to end of you're going to head out and you're going to go trail riding this weekend or you're going to go to a show this weekend. Plan ahead. A and B is have your horse updated on their vaccines. It's springtime, so some people might say, oh, I'll do my spring vaccines when I get back. If you've waited to the last minute, that's probably a good idea. I always tell people to get their vaccines updated about 10, 7 to 10 days outside of when they're going to be going to a show or go for a trail ride just to kind of get over if there's any soreness or any kind of fever spike or anything to affect. So as a good rule of thumb, about two weeks out, make sure that um, everything's up to date with your horse, and especially your Coggins, too, because some of these parks and shows will be asking for your Coggins, and last-minute Coggins can make it very stressful for everybody. But um, the things that, believe it or not, you're going to most commonly run into is a problem, and I see as a veterinarian when you get back from your show and when you get back from your trail rides, is things that can be covered by vaccines. And the simple one is influenza. We'll see that commonly. Your horse comes back with a heavy, snotty nose a cough, um, a fever, you know, bad lung sounds, that kind of thing. And it can simply be avoided by doing a vaccine. Now, granted, not all vaccines are 100%, but it can certainly be avoided. The other one would be the snotty representation of rhino or herpes. And um, those are both the, the main viruses that horses will pass to each other just from a cough or a sneeze. And again, it can be so simply protected on your horse by getting them vaccinated prior to going. So you mentioned the nose-to-nose -nose contact, and I have to admit that that's something that I am bad about letting my horse do. Is that something that when I'm at these new places, maybe I shouldn't let them meet every horse they come across? Exactly. We're finding out in strangles that uh, they're shedders, and these horses don't necessarily have the uh, strangles um, um, bacterial big lymph node infection with the oozing pus coming out from under their chin and because the oozing pus is what the other horses get sick from that they pass it, you know, the nasal discharge or the pus coming from lymph nodes, that's what causes the disease to go right down the line in a barn and you hear about these barns shut down because they have a strangled outbreak because it's so contagious going from one to the other. But it's also contagious having a horse go nose to nose and they could be a shudder and not show these signs and you wouldn't have any idea that they're a shudder. So prior to travel you're saying do the vaccines, get your health certificate and Coggins taken care of before traveling. Um, is there anything else you can do to help build your horse's immune system so that they're going to be able to fight um, some of these diseases when they get exposed? 
On long distances, there's uh, some vaccines they have uh, for the horses that are shipped by plane that are going to international events and cross-country. They have some um, autoimmune stimulant um, drugs that are out there, and I'm not going to pick one over the other, you know, for fear of uh, pharmaceutical companies calling me and saying, why did you say my, my companies? But there are plenty of um, autoimmune stimulants, but those are uh, very involved. You have, to be, you have to plan ahead. So planning ahead to fly to Europe via airplane is a long process. It's not something you decide, oh, I'm going to go there tomorrow. You have to have all your paperwork in order, and there's certain health certificates you have to get in order to do that, certain blood tests you have to have done. So all that is a planned out thing. So if you're planning ahead enough for some large event like that or a cross-country trip, with your horse, you can plan ahead to do these various shots because they're usually in stages. It's usually like day one and then day nine and then day 14. So it's about two or three weeks out you're going to be starting these immune stimulant shots. And I would recommend that you talk to your vet about is that a good option for your horse and you can boost their immune system. If you're going up north and you're going to show, you, you've been down here in Florida and you're going to go up north and show pretty heavily for the summertime, you might consider it so that maybe through the summer your horse stays very healthy. And so once you're at a new location and your horse is being exposed to a new environment, uh, what can you do once you're there to protect your horse? Do you need to disinfect your stall if you're out on the trail ride? Do you use the Don't communal? Don't care water trough. <laughs> <laughs> That's the biggest, biggest, biggest culprit, sharing water troughs. But also, you know, just like you said, hanging around outside the, the dressage arena or hanging outside the stadium for your next training class or your know, cutting class and you're chatting with the guy next to you or the woman next to you sitting on your horse, the horses are going to go nose to nose. So you might have to be the lone person that sits off and seems and appears a bit snobbish and not stand or sit next to those people with your horse because the horses will be close enough to spread disease. It just takes 35 feet, of, as I've said before, of a cough or a snort for a horse to inhale what just came out of the other horse. Um, as what come out of nasal passages. So uh, that would be the one thing. The other is it's a very simple thing to do, and if your horse is not comfortable doing it, start at home and teach it that it's an okay thing to have done, is take its temperature. I always tell people when they're moving a horse and they're going to move from one state to the other and it's over eight hours, such as Jen and Jennifer and Glenn when they came down, is take your horse's temperature every day for five days once they arrive. If there's any kind of respiratory issue they're going to start having, you're going to see that spike come in fairly quickly, and you can nip it in the bud as you see the temperature going up before it comes a, becomes a full-blown fever and disease process. Uh, and maybe protect some other people's horses from, from getting contaminated by your own horse, right? Right. So I have heard you know, people talking about um, you know, different infectious diseases like pigeon fever being at places or strangles or those kind of things, and people saying, well, I'm going to this facility. It's a really nice, fancy facility. It's a high-end facility. My horse is going to be fine there. Is that true? Is, are the, the higher-end facilities less likely to have, have infectious disease on them? Well, let's think about the high-end area here in Florida is Wellington, and we had that big herpes outbreak a few years ago. So, no, I wouldn't say that that is something that you could be comfortable in saying. Uh, what I would look for is if the barn manager, the show manager, the farm manager, wherever you're arriving is very strict about checking Coggins and checking your vaccine records if you're moving your horse from one boarding facility to another. Do they recommend that you bring in a sheet that says you had vaccines XYZ done by your veterinarian prior to coming and I want to show documentation of that? That's a pretty reputable barn and them having requirements that you must keep that 
up to date as you're in your training facility, whether you use their veterinarian or your veterinarian, you must show proof that you've had it kept up to date on their show on their boarding grounds or their training grounds. I find that to be a very reputable place. Okay. And then once you've gone out into the world and you're coming back home, is there anything that you need to do when you're back home to protect the other horses at your facility? Is it important to quarantine or not quarantine? I know there's a lot of logistics in doing that. Well, vaccinate the ones that are home. Even though they never go anywhere, you get the uh, old 25-year-old that's just a pasture ornament that enjoys life. Well, an older horse is less immune, capable of fighting off disease, so that horse still needs to have its vaccines up to date in order to protect itself from whatever you bring home. So uh, I would say, yeah, you could quarantine, but you're going to have to be quarantined for 21 days. If you're just gone for one show, that seems a little bit ridiculous. So you have to hope for your best that you did a good job while you were at the show that you won't be bringing anything home. Well, we have, uh, like I mentioned, a PDF on thehorse.com, um, and it is called our Biosecurity on the Road Special Report. Uh, we also have a biosecurity agreement form, which is just um, – was created by a veterinarian, something that he gives his uh, patients, his clients, uh, just as a reminder of some of the stuff. That's where I picked up the, you know, I will not let my horse uh, touch noses with other horses thing, was looking at that agreement form, and it really made me go, oh, yeah, I do let my horse do that, and I need to stop doing that. So go ahead, um, if you're listening, get on thehorse.com and check out those, uh, and happy, healthy trail riding and showing this summer. Jen here, host of the Horse Tip Daily Show on the Horse Radio Network. The way consumers interact with the brands they have trusted for years and those they are about to fall in love with for the first time is becoming more and more mobile, literally, and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Podcasts or internet radio shows like this one combine the new consumer preference for on-demand information and entertainment with the power of niche market audiences. Advertising on the Horse Radio Network podcasts allows you to reach the equestrian consumer using today's preferred on-demand delivery system. It's cost-effective and flexible, able to reinforce your existing marketing and social media strategies. To learn more about advertising on this show or any of the shows on the Horse Radio Network, contact us at 859-951-2022 or you can email us at glenn at horseradionetwork.com. That's glenn with two N's at horseradionetwork.com. Come and join the Horse Radio Network family. You'll enjoy the ride. And now we have a part one of a two-part series with Dr. Chris Newton talking about the common injuries to the dressage horse and how uh, we can treat and prevent some of these injuries. Well, it is my pleasure to have Dr. Chris Newton, an FEI vet, a partner at Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Chris is an active event rider and a parent of a pony clubber, and he is also our vet here at Maple Crest Farm. So Chris, it is so great, and thank you for taking your time this evening to come on the radio show. Absolutely. I'm excited to be on and always happy to support the dressage community and clients such as yourself. Great. Well, Chris, we were talking yesterday when you were here at the farm about some topics that we should talk about, and we decided this evening we should talk about some common injuries of a dressage horse. 
ways to deal with those injuries and some exercises to rehabilitate um, horses back into work. So if we could just get started on what are some common injuries for dressage horses? Well, certainly as in any sport horse, the most common injuries generally are associated with the foot. Um, The feet are a very complex structure which function not only as a support element, but they function to provide increased blood flow throughout the lower limb uh, and as a shock absorbing mechanism for the entire apparatus. Um, I think the old saying, no foot, no horse, is generally a very true saying, saying for all sport horses, and that's often the first place that we want to look for really addressing uh, long-term soundness and preventing injuries as we move up the limb. Uh, a good relationship between the farrier and the veterinarian and uh, dealing with good terrain, good footing, and good environmental care of the horse along with nutrition are really going to point in the appropriate direction for care of the foot. Uh, some of the common problems that we see with the foot is the old uh, navicular issue, which we used to call everything that was sore in the back aspect of the horse's foot, navicular disease, but we're now realizing over the last eight years with the advent of the MRI that we have a significantly greater number of structures which are being injured in that caudal aspect of the foot. So it's not just a bony degenerative process, but lots of soft tissue structures. And this has really created quite a paradigm for veterinarians and for farriers, I think. It used to be that when horses presented with heel soreness or caudal foot soreness, we tended to treat the coffin joints, change the shoeing, proceed on, and if they didn't get better, we did an erectomy. A few years ago, uh, a study was done in which they took 100 horses who had chronic unsoundness associated with the caudal foot uh, that had not returned to soundness, and they did x-rays, ultrasounds, bone scans of those horses, and none of those were diagnostic. They then did MRIs, and they found that 70% of those horses had injuries to the tendon, the deep digital flexor tendon as it coursed down through the back of the foot, and that presents a real paradigm because it's basically a a bow tendon, which is in the foot, and we all know what a bow tendon in the lower leg looks like. We all fear that injury to a certain degree. It's not as common in the dressage horse in front. It It certainly happens a bit behind in the dressage horse, but that injury in the front foot in the dressage horse is not terribly uncommon at all, and something that we should... Uh, be very mindful of. And when we do see hind foot or hind back heel injuries, I think we should always be a little bit cautious about how aggressive we are at pushing them forward quickly. So from there, we would move up the leg uh, to pastern, and we see a lot of pastern arthritis in specifically older dressage horses. And one of the wonderful things about the dressage world is that rarely do we see horses peaking as we do in the thoroughbred industry or the racing industry at the age of three or four, but we really see them peaking at the age of 10 to 17. Uh, so we're dealing with a lot of horses that are into their early 20s and still very, very competitive. 
And so low-grade, chronic, persistent arthritis of those lower joints of the leg, such as low ring bone or coffin joint arthritis, high ring bone, pastor, which is pastern joint arthritis, or fetlock arthritis, become very common. Um, and the fetlock arthritis I generally see in the dressage horse in the hind fetlocks. It's very common in the hind fetlocks. The pastern joint arthritis and the coffin joint arthritis we often see in the front legs. <clears throat> this is an area where you'll begin to see the horse's gait uh, diminish in, in its energy, diminish in its dynamic movement, and then seeing uh, low low head bobbings or inconsistencies or lack of rhythm and cadence to the gait as the horses begin to appear having low-grade lamenesses. Um, we move up the legs from there, and we run into the suspensory ligaments. Um, everybody kind of fears the word suspensory ligament uh, injury because uh, they've seen hind suspensories, which can be really chronic and nagging injuries. We, we, the hock in the horse is very similar to the heel in the human being, and those suspensory injuries are a little bit like a plantar fasciitis where they tend to be inflammatory, low-grade, and have a persistent pain. Um, and horses in the dressage world are really asked to shift their weight from that front end to their hindquarters. The horse naturally carries about 60% of its weight on the front end, but when you begin to look at horses at beyond second-level dressage, we begin to see horses that are carrying more like 60% of their weight on their hindquarters. And that puts uh, atypical stresses on these supportive structures behind. Uh, the other thing we see with age is associated with um, Cushing's disease or uh, pituitary adenomas, which is really an age-associated disease in the horse. We begin to see high levels of cortico steroid or cortisol, endogenous cortisol secretion, and that can have a significant effect on healing and regeneration of the suspensory ligaments. So the suspensory ligaments are an area that we should pay really a lot of attention to uh, in the horse and specifically in the dressage horse, those hind suspensories at their attachments by the hock and then down by the fetlocks. As we move up the legs from there, uh, in the forelimbs, we rarely see uh, diseases associated with the knees and the shoulders and the elbows in the dressage horse, but we commonly see uh, pathology associated with the distal hock joints and with the stifle joints in the dressage horse. Again, as we shift that weight to the back end, we begin to see a lot of uh, degenerative joint disease or osteoarthritis of these high range of motion joints in the hindquarters, specifically the medial joint of the stifle, which is a very high range of motion joint and a very intense load-bearing joint. And uh, in humans, we see lots of high-level athletic uh, humans who uh, begin to have uh, knee dysfunction at around the age of 30 or 40, and then at the age of 60, they're beginning to have total knee replacements or at least partial knee replacements. We haven't advanced in the horse to the to the age of joint replacements, but uh, 
we want to really focus on keeping that stifle joint very healthy. And a lot of what's important to keeping those hind joints healthy is, number one, keeping consistent muscular strength. We want the quadricep muscles to provide strong stability to the stifle joint so that it doesn't enter into excessive load bearing or extreme ranges of load and strength bearing uh, without having the support to strength to hold the joint in place. And we we want to make sure that whatever low-grade inflammation is occurring in those joints, we're able to really diminish very quickly. Uh, Cartilage, which lines these joints, or joint cartilage, which lines these joints and provides for the smooth flow and the smooth function of these joints, is not regenerated with age. And that cartilage doesn't receive its nutrition from blood vessels that run through the bones. It actually receives its nutrition from the fluid, which is produced by the capsules, which encapsulate these joints. If joints begin to have low grades of inflammation, the cells in the joint capsule stop producing the quality of joint fluid that's necessary to feed this cartilage. And then the cartilage begins to atrophy or to shrink, and then it becomes more prone to to being chipped off and ulcerating and being lost. And then as you reach sort of a a dead-end point of losing enough cartilage where you have bone beginning to wear on bone, then you're going to have the presence of severe degenerative joint disease or severe osteoarthritis, and that begins to become very difficult to reverse. So we want to begin early in these dressage horses' lives with strengthening the appropriate structures, teaching those muscles how to contain the range of motion of the joint so that we don't have joints which are popping way out of place and having pressures and banging on that cartilage. And we also want to deal with the inflammation in the joint with products such as uh, polysulfated glycosaminoglycans and hyaluronic acids and potentially joint injections if necessary if you have a significant enough joint flare so that you keep the quality of that joint fluid to a maximum and allow the feeding of the cartilage uh, to be maximized and the health of that cartilage to be maintained. We we oftentimes see young, high quality of dressage horses, which move like gumbies. They're incredibly elastic with unbelievably dynamic movement. But those horses are oftentimes the most prone at damaging the cartilage in the joints because they will hyperextend their joints or hyperflex their joints when they're being put into motion. And so it's those young horses that we really want to focus on uh, developing the the periarticular muscle strength so that those joints are held well. And uh, that can be done through kinesiostatic exercises such as hand movements, but it's also done through really proper dressage, which begins through engaging the entire top line, and then we can begin to focus on it. And as we move upward from those from those joints within the legs, we then see an entire axial skeleton or a skeleton that starts at the, the first joint right behind the skull and ends at the last joint at the base at the top of the tail head. Uh, and there's a tremendous number of joints which run within that skeleton. And those joints in the dressage horse 
are imperative to get the appropriate range of motion so that the muscles of the back and of the neck can engage up and the horse is allowed to bring its shoulders up correctly and engage the muscles of the hind end. If the dressage horse is asked to flex through the pole and through the neck, but the back is ventriflexed, and, and meaning it's, the spine is pushed downward towards its belly, then the joints of the hind limb are going to receive more impact on the front of the hind limb. The, the range of motion of the hind limb won't continue all the way through so that the horse is landing correctly, and then you'll have excessive jarring going up through those joints. You'll have bruising of that cartilage on a continuous basis. You'll get low-grade joint inflammation. You'll have poor production of joint fluid, and then you'll accelerate the the deterioration of those joints and shorten the long-term career of the horse. Uh, as I tell most of my clients, the most difficult component of the horse's anatomy to achieve appropriate fitness in is the nervous system, the brain and the nerves. Uh, the easiest thing to condition is the heart. And what we want to do is we want, it takes us oftentimes 12, 13, 14, 15 years to get the brain and that nervous system functioning correctly so that when we apply a subtle half halt, the horse does an appropriate passage or pee off but we want to have the horse's joints and limbs still functioning like they were four-year-olds at the time that their nervous system has developed and become fit enough to sustain that level of training. What other pre preventative things can we do? I mean, I, we do quite a few things in our barn about, you know, icing the legs maybe after stressful work or wrapping the legs after stressful work. Like what kinds of things that we do already are useful and one, what have you seen that maybe isn't that useful? Again, as we, as we go through the horse's career, I think it's really important very early on, and I think it starts with the pre-purchase exam, or if, you have, if you've bred the horse with what I would call an early training exam, so that you get a solid idea of what the weaknesses of each horse that you're developing its training program are. Uh, many times when we breed horses, and, and I do think the dressage community is much stronger in the breeding and developing of horses than, say, the eventing and jumping communities are, show jumping communities are. And so many times dressage riders have horses that they've bred within their own operation and they've developed through their careers. And so they've never gone through a pre-purchase. They've never radiographed these horses through all their joints. And I do think it's important that you kind of get a baseline on these young horses and you identify which side is their strong side, which side is their weak side, where do they have tendencies for significant muscle tightness, where do they have tendencies for uh, lack of range of motion in their body and, and soreness. And that way you can work on those areas more effectively and more efficiently instead of having them uh, finally break, have the camel that breaks the, or the hair that breaks the camel's back appear right before your CDI or right before you're going to your to the Olympics or whatever major competition it may be, uh, which often happens. And so you want to begin with that, and then you want to work uh, closely with your team or your farrier, your trainer, the rider, uh, and your veterinarian to intermittently reevaluate the horse and re-identify these areas. When the horse is stressed significantly, 
we still have what we want to do is diminish the level of inflammation, acute inflammation as much as we can beyond the normal level. Some inflammation isn't bad because as we know, as we train a horse, its bones and its ligaments and its tendons are changing in response to this work. Its muscles are changing. And part of what drives that change is a low level of inflammation. But as that inflammation becomes severe or excessive, then it begins to degrade the tissues and the tissue is incapable of rebuilding faster than it's being broken down. We're looking for subclinical signs of that process that are occurring. And then we want to integrate icing, integrate pro-joint care medications like the hyaluronic acids and the polysulfated glycosaminoglycans. And we want to integrate non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or intraarticular medications if we need to, uh, to maximize, uh, to minimize the damage that's being done and to minimize the excessive degree of inflammation. Then we want to ex- improve the lymphatic system. So we oftentimes, when we all think about horses and we think about the circulatory system of the horse, uh, in ourselves, we, we think about the heart, and the arteries that carry the blood away, and the veins that carry the blood back to the heart, right? But there's an entire system that deals with the fluid that leaks out of the blood vessels and ca- and captures that fluid that leaks around the cells and takes it back into the, into the circulatory system, and that's the lymphatic system. When there is a inflammation, what happens is the arteries dilate, they become enlarged, and blood cells and inflammatory mediators are able to leak out through those openings, and they go to the tissue and they send out chemomodulators or signals that certain things should come in. So say a horse got banged on its shin with a fence board by kicking, then the blood vessels around that area will dilate and white blood cells will go in and they'll eat up the red blood cells that have leaked out into the bruise that's occurred there, and you'll have inflammation. But excessive inflammation, as we know, can be bad. So icing it initially to vasoconstrict it and diminish the amount of leakage there is very helpful. Then after that 72-hour period, we want to actually stimulate increased lymphatic reabsorption. And one of the better ways of doing that is through these ceramic wraps or through massage or tissue manipulation, those back-on-track type wraps or or thing or bandaging that's going to improve the movement of that fluid. And, you know, the, the fluid that sits down in the lower legs of, of the horse and builds up and stocks up is is sometimes we think about it as not being harmful at all, but if there is inflammation there, that fluid is containing large degrees of inflammatory mediators and cell and triggers that tell cells to um, to die or has the byproducts of cellular waste. And we want to accelerate the removal of those back into the circulatory system where the liver can process them and the kidney can help flush them out of the system. And and that's why how the icing initially helps in doing such and how the use of the, the back on tracks or just standing bandage is, and how a lot of the laser therapies and low-grade, low-intensity therapeutic ultrasounds and things like that help. 
is they accelerate that cellular metabolism and they improve the removal of these waste products and inflammatory mediators that pull around the cells and drive continued and excessive inflammation and degradation. So as we go up the levels, Dr. Newton, with the horses, how often do you like to sort of go over them and, and sort of be part of their team as the veterinarian? As they're competing at the training in first levels, I think it should be done minimally once a year during those periods of time. And, and I think that we oftentimes look at it in a paradigm of the uh, how far they are along training, meaning we say a training level horse versus a Grand Prix horse. But it's not just that. It's also sometimes age in that sometimes they're 18, 19, 20-year-old horses who are back down, who are doing second level and toting an amateur around who need to be looked at more frequently because they're further on in their in their physical deterioration, you know, um, the horses. So those older horses and horses that are getting to the higher levels of competition should probably be looked at twice to three times a year uh, during leading up to the maximum periods of competition. We typically have a, kind of a really intensive period of competition from uh, February, if you're going to Florida, through kind of May and then again that hits again in kind of October or September through that November period. And sometimes it's broken up to three periods and you'd like to look at them prior to entering each of those periods to try and adjust your training methods associated with what the horses are showing you and to to try and develop strength in those certain areas. And, you know, if you begin to see a horse, for instance, that's getting tighten its pelvis uh, or having loss of range of motion in its hind end, then you can begin to do the the third degree of bend type of exercises, you know, where you're doing lateral work towards the bend, such as the half pass or the pirouette or the turn on the haunches. If you're having horses that are getting really tight through their back and losing their range of motion there, then you can begin to add in that second degree of bend exercises or the lateral work which is moving away from the bend, such as the leg yield or the shoulder in. And if you have horses that are, are fixating in their pole or the base of their neck and uh, having cervical arthritis or neck arthritis and things like that, which we all know everything begins at the mouth, it moves through the pole, it moves through the neck, and then the horse elevates in its shoulder and it gives through its back, and then it fully engages through its pelvis and the seat of power drives from the feet all the way up through there so that our have halts are connecting to that hind end. But if we have areas of immobility along that axial skeleton, then that process can't occur. And then the horse begins to alter the way it goes and it's going to increase its weight bearing or increase its uh, improper loading of certain limbs and then accelerate the deteriorative process in those limbs. So that's how we're going to identify those. And, and I think that age and level of competition both drive the frequency of, of checking to me. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a horse that maybe is ha- uh, has a tendon injury. And I think that we all know the horse needs a period of rest or stall rest. But uh, what do you think the best way is to kind of, maybe we could talk about bringing a horse back to work 
Can you give us some ideas about what's what we can do there, and you know maybe products that could help them uh, as far as you know the veterinarian being involved, and also just from the trainer's perspective, how do we bring that horse back to work? Um, so the most common tendon injury is a is a tear or a strain of the superficial digital flexor tendon. Um, the superficial digital flexor tendon um, in injury in the dressage horse. Uh, as long as it's not at its insertion or attachment to the coffin bone, um, has a very good prognosis for return to full work, in my opinion. But we have to remember that that tendon is going to take 18 months to completely heal. Okay? So I really tend to give those horses a year off. And the first 30 days of that period of time everything should be maximized to diminish the inflammation that's gone on around it and to maximize, to begin to ma- maximize the quality of healing that's going on. If, if the tendon injury is significant, then I really encourage the use of stem cells or the use of platelet rich plasma into the lesions and, uh, we do everything we can to improve the quality of healing, but we have to remember that when we're using these products, these biologic products, that the goal of them is not to, or the end goal of them is not to accelerate the rate of healing, but to improve the quality of healing. So we're going to utilize those, and then the horse would be on stall rest for the first 30 days, and then I tend to with routine ultrasound follow-up over the next 60 days following that 30-day stall rest, actually do a mounted rehabilitation uh, program. And then if the tendon is healing well, uh, under tack as it's walking and then jogging, then the horse gets to go into a small paddock. And then I think it's very important from around month five to month 10 of that rehabilitation program that the horse is able to be out where it can constantly mildly strain the tendon and reheal the tendon. I've early in my career, I really confined the horse for extended periods of time and controlled the rehab process. And I found a lot of horses re-injured themselves. And I think that that constant movement and micro tear and reheal gives you a much stronger end product at that year time than the horse that has been kept in a stall and had very limited uh, reloading of that tendon only being done under tack. Dr. Newton, thanks so much for your time this evening. All your information has been great and we really, really appreciate it. Um, So thanks again. Well, thanks for listening to everyone. You can find links to today's guests at dressageradio.com. You can find us on Facebook at Dressage Radio Show. Reese and Philip will be back next week with more fascinating guests, the latest headlines, and of course, plenty of entertaining conversation. <laughs>